0: Chapter three of the Castle of the Carpathians by Jules Verne. This Librebox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Joe Noia, Somerset, New Jersey. CHAPTER three. The village of Verst is of so little importance that most maps do not indicate its position. In administrative rank it is even below its neighbor called Vulcan, from the name of that portion of the place RANGE on which both are picturesquely situated. At the present time, when the opening of the coalfields had increased the importance of the towns of Petrosny. Livenzel, and others, a few miles off, neither Vulcan nor Verst have received the least advantage from their proximity to a great industrial center. What the villages were fifty years ago, what they will doubtless be half a century hence, they are still. And accordingly to Elysée Recluse, a good half of the Vulcan population consists of people engaged in watching the frontier, custom-house officers, gendarmes, revenue officers, and quarantine attendants omit the gendarmes and the revenue officers and a large population of agriculturalists and you will have the population of worst consisting of a few hundred inhabitants it is a street this village nothing but a wide street the uphill nature of which makes the ascent and descent laboriously enough along the road it serves as a natural thoroughfare between a wallachian and transylvanian frontier through it pass the cattle and sheep and pigs the dealers in fresh provisions fruits and cereals the few travelers who venture through the defile instead of taking the Khosavar and Maros Valley railways. Nature has assuredly generously endowed the district between the mountains of Bihar, Retizet, and Parang. Rich in the fertility of its soil, it is also rich in its underground wealth. There are salt mines at Thorda, with an annual output of more than 20,000 tons. Mount Perajd, measuring 7 kilometers in circumference at its dome, is entirely formed of chloride of sodium. The mines of Tarasco yield lead, galena, mercury and especially iron the beds of which were worked in the tenth century at vediahonyad are mines whose products can be turned into steel of superior quality there are coal mines easily worked in the upper strata of the lacustrine valleys of the districts of hatiag livenzel and petrosny a vast deposit estimated to contain two hundred and fifty million tons and finally there are gold mines at alfenbanja at topenfalba the region of the gold seekers, where thousands of primitive mills are working the sands of various pater the transylvanian Pactolos, and exporting every year about two million francs' worth of the precious metal. Here is a district that would seem to be greatly favored by nature, and yet its wealth is of very little profit to its population. If the more important centers, like Torotzko, Petrozny, and Lognay, possess a few establishments suited to the comfortable conditions of modern industrial life, if they have regular buildings laid out with rule and line, and outhouses of shops, real workmen's towns, in fact, if they have a certain number of houses with balconies and verandas, that is not the case at Vulcan or at Verst some sixty houses irregularly clustered along the only street capped with a fanciful roof the ridge overhanging the mud wall the front toward the garden an attic with a scarlet as a top story a dilapidated barn as an annex a stable all awry covered with straw here and there a well surmounted by a beam from which hangs a bucket two or three ponds which run over during a storm streams of which the tortuous ruts indicated the course such is the village of verst built on both sides of the road between the slanting slopes of a hill but it is all very fresh and attractive. There are flowers at the doors and windows, curtains of verdure screening the walls, plants in disorder mingling with the old gold of the thatch, poplars, elms, beeches, pines, maples climbing above the houses as high as they can. Beyond are the zigzagging flanks of the hills, and in the background the tops of the mountains, blue in the distance, and mingling their blue with the sky. Neither German nor Hungarian is spoken at first, nor in any of this part of Transylvania these people speak Romanian. even the gypsies do so of whom a few families are established rather than camped in the different villages of the country these strangers adopt the language of the country as they adopt the religion those of verst form a sort of little clan under the authority of the voivode with their huts their barracas with pointed roofs their legions of children so different in their manners and regularity of their life from those of their congeners who wander about europe they even belong to the greek church and conform to the religion of the Christians among whom they have settled. As religious head, Verst has a pope, who resides at Vulcan and superintends the two villages, which are only half a mile apart. Civilization is like air or water. Wherever there is a passage, be it only a fissure, it will penetrate and modify the conditions of the country. But it must be admitted that no fissure has yet been found through this southern portion of the Carpathians. Vulcan, as LSA Recluse says, is the last post of civilization in the valley of the Wallachian Sill, and we need not be astonished at worst being one of the most backward villages on the country of Kosovar, And how can it be otherwise in these places, where everyone is born and lives and dies without ever leaving them? But perhaps you will say there is a schoolmaster and a judge at verst Yes, without doubt. But Magister Hermann was only able to teach what he knew, that is, to read a little, to write a little, to reckon a little. His personal instruction did not go beyond that. Of science, history, geography, literature... He knew nothing beyond the popular songs and legends of the surrounding country. In that respect, his memory was richly stored. He was strong in manners of romance, and the few scholars of the village gained great profit from his lessons. As to the judge, we may as well say something concerning the chief magistrate of Verst. The bureau, Master Colts, was a little man, of from fifty-five to sixty years old, a Romanian by birth, his hair close-cut and gray, his mustache still black, his eyes more gentle than fiery. Solidly built like a mountaineer, he wore the large felt hat on his head, the high belt with ornamental buckle around his waist, the sleeveless vest, and the short baggy breeches tucked into his high leather boots. As much mayor as judge, for his function obliged him to intervene in the many disputes between neighbor and neighbor, he was chiefly occupied in administering his village with a great show of authority, and not without some benefit, to his purse. In fact, all transactions, purchases, or sales were subject to a tax for his benefit, to say nothing of the tolls with which travelers for pleasure or trade filled his pocket. This lucrative position kept Master Colt's in easy circumstances. If most of the peasants of the country were ground down by the usury of the Israelitish moneylenders, who were the real proprietors of the soil, the bureau had managed to escape. His goods were free from hypothecations, entabulations as they were called in this country, and he owed nothing. He would rather have lent than borrowed, and would certainly have done so without fleecing the poor people. He owned several pasturages, good grazing grounds for his flocks, lands under fair cultivation, although he would have nothing to do with the new methods, vineyards which flattered his vanity when he walked down the lines of stocks covered with the grapes he sold at a goodly profit, although he retained a fair portion for his private consumption. It need not be said that the house of Master Colts was the best in the village, at the angle of the terrace which crossed the long road as it ascended. A stone house, if you please, with its facade continued round onto the garden its door between the third and fourth windows, with the festoons of verdure bordering the gutter with their slender branchlets, with the two great beech-trees spreading their boughs above the flowery thatch. Behind lay a fine orchard, with its bed of vegetables like a chessboard, and its rows of fruit-trees skirting the slopes of the hill. Inside the house were fine, clean rooms—some to dine in, some to sleep in—with their painted furniture, tables, beds, benches, and stools—their sideboards, on which shone the pots and dishes the beams of the ceiling from which hung vases decorated with ribbons and gaily colored stuffs the heavy coffers covered with cloths and quilts which served as chests and cupboards the white walls the highly colored portraits of romanian patriots amongst others the popular hero of the fifteenth century the voivoda veda hungat it was a charming house which would have been too large for a man by himself but master colts was not alone a widower for twelve years he had a daughter the lovely Mariotta who was much admired from verse to Vulcan and even beyond. She might have been called by one of those strange pagan names, Florica, Diana, Danricchia, which are much in honor in Wallachian families. But no, she was Mariotta, that is to say, the little sheep. But she had grown this little sheep and was now a graceful girl of twenty, fair with brown eyes, a gentle look, charming features, and a pleasing figure. In truth, she could not look other than attractive with her chemisette embroidered with red thread up to the collar, and on the wrists and on the shoulders, her petticoat clasped by a belt with silver buckles, her catrinza, or double atron, with red and blue stripes knotted to her waist, her little boots of yellow leather, the light handkerchief on her head, her long hair floating behind her, the plate of which was ornamented with a ribbon or a metal clasp. Yes, a handsome girl was de Colts, and, no harm to her, She was rich, that is, for this village lost in the depth of the Carpathians. A good manager? Undoubtedly, for she managed her father's house in intelligent fashion. Was she educated? Yes, at Magister Hermod's school she had learned to read, to write, to cipher, and she ciphered, wrote, and read correctly. But she had not been pushed very far, and there were reasons for it. On the other hand, she knew about as much as was to be known of the Transylvanian traditions and sagas. She knew as much as her master. She knew the legend of the Lini Koh, the Rock of the Virgin, in which a rather fanciful princess escapes from the pursuit of the Tartars. The legend of the Dragon's Cave in the Valley of the King's Stairs. The legend of the Fortress of Diva, which was built in the Days of the Fairies. The legend of the Detunata, the Thunderclap, that famous basaltic mountain like a giant stone fiddle on which the Devil plays on stormy nights. The legend of Rechezat, with its summit cut down by a witch. The legend of the Valley of Thorda, which was cleft by the stroke of the sword of St. Ladislas. We must confess that Miriota believed in all these mythological fictions, but she was nonetheless a charming and amiable girl. A good many young men of the district found her so, even without considering that she was the only heiress of the Biro, Master Colts, the first magistrate of Verst. But there was no use in paying her attentions. Was she not already engaged to Nicholas Deck? A handsome type of Romanian was this Nicholas, or rather Nick Deck, twenty five years of age, tall, strong in constitution, head well set in the shoulders, hair black, covered by the white culback, look clear and frank, bearing himself well under his vest of lambskin embroidered with needlework, well set on his slender legs, legs as of a deer, and an air of determination in his gait and gestures. He was a forester by trade, that is to say, almost as much as a soldier as a civilian. As he owned a little land, under cultivation in the environs of Verst, he was approved of by the father, and as he was a good-looking, well-made fellow, he was approved of by the daughter, with whom he was deeply in love. He would not allow anyone to attempt to rival him, nor to look at her too closely. And no one thought of doing so. The marriage of Nick Deck and Mariotta Colts was to take place in a fortnight toward the middle of the approaching month. On that occasion, the village would hold a general holiday. Master Colts would do the thing properly. He was no miser. If he liked getting money, he did not refuse to spend it when opportunity offered. When the ceremony was over, Nick Deck would take up his residence in the house which would be his when the buyer was gone. And when Mariotta knew he was near her, perhaps she would cease to fear, as she heard the creak of a door or the rattling of a window in the long winter nights that some phantom escaped from her favorite legends was about to put in an appearance. To complete the list of the notables in worst, we must mention two more, and these not the least important, the schoolmaster and the doctor. Magister Herman was a big man in spectacles about 45 years old, having always between his lips the curved stem of his pipe and a porcelain bowl. His hair, thin and disordered on a faddish head, his face hairless, with a twitching in the left cheek. His great occupation was cutting the pens of his pupils, whom he forbade to use steel pens on principle, but how he lengthened the nibs of his old pointed pocket knife. With what precision and winking of his eye did he give the final touch by cutting the point? Above everything, good handwriting. To that all his efforts were directed. It was to that that a schoolmaster, careful of his mission, should urge his pupils. Instruction was of secondary importance. And we know what Magister Hermit taught and what the generations of boys and girls learnt on the benches of his school. And now for the turn of Dr. Patak. What? A doctor at worst? And yet the village still believed in the supernatural? Yes, but we might as well be clear as to the title borne by Dr. Patak, as we had to be that regarding that borne by Judge Colts. Patak was a little man with a prominent corporation, short and fat, aged about 45, ostensibly acting as medical adviser in Verst and his neighborhood. With his imperturbable self-confidence, his deafening loquacity, he inspired no less confidence than the shepherd Frick, and that is to say, little. He dealt in consultations and drugs, but so harmless were they that they were made no worse the petty ailments of his patients, who would have got well had they been left to themselves. People ate healthy enough in these parts. The air is of first quality. Epidemic maladies are there unknown. If people die, it is because they must, even in this privileged corner of Transylvania. As to Dr. Patak, yes, they called him doctor. He had had no education either in medicine, or in pharmacy, or in anything. He was merely an old quarantine attendant, whose occupation consisted in looking after the travelers detained on the frontier, for health purposes. Nothing more. That, it appeared, was enough for the easy-going people of Verst. It should be added, and there is nothing surprising in it, that Dr. Patak was a wide-awake fellow, as is usually the case with one who had to look after other people and he believed in none of the superstitions current in the Carpathian district, not even in those that were cherished in the village. He laughed at them, he made fun of them, and when he was told that no one had dared to approach the castle from time immemorial, he would say, You must not dare me to visit the old hovel. But as they did not dare him, as they carefully kept from daring him, Dr. Patak had never been there, and with the help of credulity the castle of the Carpathians remained enveloped in impenetrable mystery. End of chapter 3